0: With the 2020 presidential election and the confirmation of a new Supreme Court Justice on the horizon, many questions loom about the future of health policy in the United States. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm talking with Sherry Gleed, Dean of the New York University Wagner Graduate School of Public Service, and Mark Pauley, Professor of Healthcare Management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Gleed and Dr. Pauly have written perspective articles about what a Joe Biden or a Donald Trump presidential election win, respectively, would mean for health care reform, including for the future of the Affordable Care Act. Dr. Gleed, starting with you, you write in your perspective article that, although a president has some ability to shape health policy through executive action, much of what Biden proposes to do would also require legislation. So how much will possible changes to the ACA and other health reforms depend not just on who wins the presidential election, but on the composition of Congress?
1: Well, the Trump administration has made various regulatory changes to the ACA, primarily weakening the risk pooling elements of the act by allowing people to purchase short-term plans and association health plans that don't necessarily comply with the rules of the ACA, and also has allowed states to do experiments with Medicaid, such as work requirements, and now they're entertaining a demonstration that would involve a block grant for Medicaid, all of that through regulatory actions. And certainly, a Biden administration would, could, surely would reverse those kinds of regulatory actions. But there's a limit to how far you can go with regulation. In particular, you can't spend any new money through regulation. You can't really regulate providers in new ways without new regulation. And the Biden campaign proposal includes provisions that would improve the generosity of the subsidies in the Affordable Care Act, extend them further up the income scale, make the coverage of the subsidized somewhat more generous with lower cost sharing, and offer a public option, in particular in places where Medicaid is not available to everyone and perhaps to people in employer plans, all of those things would definitely require legislation. In addition, if the Supreme Court determines that a mandate with a zero penalty is not constitutional under the taxing power, which is the concern right now, if the administration wanted to restore a penalty with the individual mandate, or even to remove the individual mandate provision altogether, that would require legislation.
0: So Dr. Pauly, in your perspective article, you talk about the constitutional challenge to the ACA that's coming before the Supreme Court as well. What do you think that the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg means for the ACA's future? And what would happen if major portions of the law are deemed unconstitutional?
2: Well, I'm not an expert on the first question, but I think the obvious answer is there's more of a chance that the Supreme Court may either overturn the entire ACA or zero out parts of it with a more conservative majority, although we don't know what Justice Roberts would do given another chance, even had there been no change in the composition of the Supreme Court. In terms of what it would mean well of course it would mean a great deal for the parts of the ACA that would be abolished the two main differences i think that that would be seen would be well the ACA supports expansion of medicaid and the ACA has set up these obamacare exchanges with a set of regulatory rules and in principle although one expects that any court decision will not happen until late spring in principle at that point Both of those things could change. Now, the expansion of state Medicaid was done by state law, so it wouldn't go away immediately. But what might go away relatively quickly, depending on if a Trump administration is in charge, would be the 90% subsidy to the newly eligible. From the point of view of the exchange's in the way, the rest of the Affordable Care Act, well, some legislation would obviously be needed, at least based on the president's statement that his sentiment is in favor of preserving access to care at reasonable premiums for high-risk people. Some legislation would be needed to fill the gap in what's been taken away. I neither predict nor support a Trump win, but my biggest fear, if there is one, is that Congress may be unable to get itself together to fill the gap that would be left by removal of the Affordable Care Act. And in a way, the biggest gap from my point of view is the subsidies that are present in exchanges to lower middle income people. If those go away, then I think there's a serious issue of continuing to be able to maintain health insurance for at least a fairly large number of Americans, not a very large fraction of the total population, of course, because most of us under 65, well, I used to be under 65, but I still get my insurance through my job, but for people who get individual insurance, that exchange and the subsidy to it has, we think, been pretty important in reducing the number of uninsured people who are not poor.
0: So to what extent do you both think that a Biden administration could undo the changes that Trump has made to the ACA, assuming that the law stands, either on its own or with help from Congress. Dr. Gleed, you began to answer that question in your first response.
1: So the things that the Trump administration did through regulatory action, short-term plans, association health plans, work requirements in Medicaid, the effort to block grant Medicaid, some of these kinds of changes, which were all done within HHS through regulatory action, those could be undone and surely would be undone by a Biden administration which would revert back to the rules that existed during the Obama administration or modifications of those rules. The one piece that would require legislation even to restore things to pre-Trump days would be potentially restoring a penalty on the individual mandate, which might be necessary if the Supreme Court decides that the law is not constitutional under Congress's taxing power. So if that's what the Supreme Court decides, there are two potential avenues to remedy that. One is to eliminate the individual mandate altogether. And the second is to restore some penalty to it. Both of those actions would require legislation.
0: And Dr. Pauly, what do you think about the possibilities for a Biden administration? Well, it's certainly
2: true that the executive orders that the president has issued to permit short-term health plans to be longer term and other things like that would probably be abolished by a Biden administration. Although many states have already passed laws prohibiting them, so it's not as if it's black or white there. But that would surely be a change, and I certainly agree with Sherry that, personally, I believe an individual mandate is a wise thing to have in health policy, and it should be one with sufficient penalty to actually make a serious difference in the question of whether the Obamacare mandate made that much of a difference in terms of performance of the health care system, but it certainly made a lot of difference in performance of the judicial system, which has been as puzzling, I think, as anything to economists trying to make sense of
0: <laughs> health policy. All right. Dr. Gleed, you write that a democratic victory in November could mean the development and passage of legislation to close the remaining gaps left by the ACA. What would that sort of legislation include? And how likely is it that we'll see something like a public option?
1: So I think there are three kinds of gaps that are left by the ACA. One is that the structure of the subsidies is quite generous or quite reasonable for very low-income people but it actually scales down pretty quickly. And it looks like, at least from the behavior of people in the market, that the subsidies just are not big enough to be viable. I'm not going to use the word affordable, but certainly attractive to lower middle income people and people just outside of the subsidy range. So there are some uninsured people who are maybe eligible for some subsidy, but it's not very much, or who are not eligible for subsidy at all. And the Biden plan would extend the subsidies that are available to make them more generous for that population. And the intent is that that would capture a group of people who are not currently covered. A second group of people who are not currently covered are people who live in states where the state has not expanded Medicaid and their incomes are below 100% of the federal poverty line and they are not eligible for Medicaid under existing rules, which usually means that they're not mothers of dependent children or disabled people. In those states, these people fall into what's called the Medicaid coverage gap. There are about 2 million such people. And there isn't any subsidized coverage available to them. Because of the structure of the ACA, no one had anticipated that such people would exist. The expectation was that all states would expand Medicaid. And so the Biden administration proposes that it will have a public option. We'll come back to how that would work afterwards. But one big important role of the public option would be to do that gap-filling activity in the states that haven't yet expanded Medicaid. And the third piece of people who might not have coverage or who might have inadequate coverage are people who currently have employer-sponsored coverage or are offered employer-sponsored coverage. And that coverage either comes at a premium that is too high for the family, which is what's called a family glitch, or coverage with deductibles and coinsurance that is just too high given the financial circumstances of the person. And the Biden administration proposes that such people would be allowed to purchase insurance in the marketplaces that they would be eligible for subsidized coverage there. Those three elements together would go a long way towards moving to completely universal health insurance where everybody would be covered. They would not in themselves get you all the way there, but they would take you a long way. But the pieces that I've just given you, they all cost money. And then on top of it, there is this question of a public option, and a public option might save money, conceivably, depending on how it's designed, but it's a complex design problem that will definitely require legislative attention.
0: Dr. Pauly, you said you wanted to stay away from too much prediction, but what do you think of the chances that policies are going to be implemented that would meaningfully lower prescription drug prices, address the problem of surprise billing? How much does that depend on who wins the presidency? And- How much on the composition of the next Congress?
2: I think mostly on the latter, because the president has certainly expressed the sentiment that he would also like to see lower prescription drug prices and has taken some steps, some of which have yet to be implemented or may never be implemented, but some of which have, like the jawboning of the firms that sell insulin to get the price down. So whoever wins, it seems like there's a sentiment to do something about prescription drug prices, that's easy enough to say. The hard part is how to do it and how to do it in a way that does more good than harm. For example, a proposal to allow people to import drugs from Canada where prices are lower could just mean that a lot of American firms would stop selling their drugs in Canada, which wouldn't be good for the Canadians and, and wouldn't help the rest of us either. And then there's the more cosmic question, of course, if the prices are lower, what impact would that have on R&D incentives and the long shot but potentially breakthrough discovery, say, to treat Alzheimer's that we would all like to see? Nobody knows. The one thing I know for sure is that nobody knows whether prescription drug prices are too high or too low because I don't know whether they're too high or too low because the key research hasn't been done. People have their guesses, but there's, as usual in economics, there's a trade-off that lower prices benefit current people who consume drugs but may have adverse consequences for future potential users of innovative products.
0: What do you both think might change about the U.S. coronavirus response under a potential Biden administration and whether the current administration's response would shift if Trump were to win a second term? Professor Gleed, perhaps you first.
1: I think that the coronavirus response would change pretty dramatically under a Biden administration, if for no other reason than I think the Biden campaign has been pretty clear. And I think this is consistent with the Obama administration's position and most other administration's positions as well, that addressing the problem of the virus is a federal responsibility, that the federal government needs to be the leader on this, that we could talk about science, whatever, but that fundamentally this is a responsibility of the federal government, that the federal government needs to work with other nations on it, that there needs to be a global response, and that things like vaccines and PPE and all of the other decisions that need to be made need to be made in a transparent, central fashion, and that this is not a moment where we really benefit from having competition among the states or competition among countries around the globe. I think that's been Biden's position since way back in January, and I think That's very different from the Trump administration's position, which is a coherent position that says, no, this should be treated pretty much like everything else, which is the states should do their thing and the federal government's role should be relatively minimal. And there are a lot of balancing acts and we don't want to be too active in the global sphere. So I do think it would be a pretty radical change.
0: And Professor Pauly, what do you think?
1: Well, I don't
2: think the Trump administration would change very much. Maybe they'd light a few more candles in the hope that that might bring about the discovery soon of a vaccine that really is highly protective and can be distributed quickly. I personally have been really disappointed at what the states have done, whether they have Republican or Democratic governors in terms of coping with this issue. After all, there is some, of course, some problem of infected people traveling across state lines. But. Most of the problem is internal, and virtually all of the states, at least in terms of overall effect, have been pretty ineffective in terms of carrying out their responsibilities. But it's, of course, been a whole exercise in finger-pointing between the states and the feds about whose responsibility is it to do what, and at least some clear definition one way or another might have been helpful early on but I don't think that the Trump administration is on a path where it it envisions dramatic future changes unless and until a vaccine is discovered and then it's probably some version of all hands on deck to try to get that vaccine out there quickly so as to permit, of course, the more rapid opening of the economy, which the president dearly, dearly wants to happen.
0: Finally, what effect, if any, do you think that the renewed attention to systemic racism and health and socioeconomic inequities is going to have on health policy over the next four years. Professor Gleed, perhaps you first.
1: Well, I think the one effect it's going to have is, and I think this is an extremely salutary effect, is that people are going to be very conscious of this problem as they think about health policy in a way that I don't think in the past has been true. So I would say that historically, the way we've done health policy, and this is not in any particular administration is we've done Medicare policy or Medicaid policy or exchange policy, whatever we're doing, and then there's an Office of Minority Health somewhere off on the side that does its thing, which is a kind of limited piece of the puzzle. I think the attention to this idea that racism or discrimination or whatever are systemic forces you to say, well, wait a minute, what is it about the design of these programs in their entirety? How are they likely to affect different kinds of populations? And that's just the kind of thinking that has really only ever been done ex-post and not very much ex-ante. I don't know what changes that is going to generate. I think that's an open question, but certainly we already see like glimmers of it in the COVID response. So I'm digressing a little bit, but one of the things that's been really interesting in the coverage of the COVID response has been the recognition that part of the reason that COVID has had such terrible effects on minority populations particularly, is that the hospitals that treat those populations have less money, fewer resources, they've really been inundated, and they haven't had the capacity to respond. Of course, that was true all along, and nobody had really paid very much attention to the fact that hospitals that rely entirely on public payments simply operate at lower cost and have fewer resources than hospitals that have many more privately insured patients. People are starting to look at things and not take them so much for granted. And that probably will continue in thinking about health policy.
2: And Dr. Polly, Well, I agree with everything Sherry has said. I mean, there's been research done for years on health disparities and evidence is quite strong, whether it's based on race or ethnicity or socioeconomic status. But I think the reaction of the country as a whole has been just to say, well, isn't that too bad? And COVID, of course, showed the consequences of a serious spread of infection that fell very unevenly on parts of the population. I think the real question is, who's the audience for this information? And I think some of the opinions I've been reading suggest that the concern of the bulk of the population has ebbed somewhat from what it was originally surrounding the death of George Floyd. And the question really is one for the whole country, whether we are willing to sustain our concern and from an economic point of view put our money where our mouth is in terms of probably preferential access to medical care for populations that bear much higher burdens of illness or whatever it may not even be medical care it may be changes in the housing situation and of course the ultimate miracle drug more money that's needed to help out low-income and minority people and the question is whether the rest of us will actually be willing to reach in the wallet and pay for that I sure hope so but been disappointed before
0: thank you dr. Polly thank you dr. Gleed